Hi, welcome to Were the Kids Alright, a podcast where we analyze the books we read as kids. My name is Jacqueline and I use they, them, or she, her pronouns. And my name is Sophie and I use she, her pronouns. We're two audiobook enthusiasts who read a lot as children and now have thoughts. We will get into spoilers, so that's your warning for that. Content warnings for this week are racism, deportation, allusion to learning disabilities, bullying, politics, parent death, discussions of police brutality, description of injury, incarcerated parents, and classism. This week we read Harbor Me by Jacqueline Woodson. Yes, finally did pick a book. (laughs) This book follows a Brooklyn sixth grader named Haley who has a complicated backstory. Her mother is dead and her father is unjustly in prison. She lives with her uncle and goes to school with her best friend Holly. Holly and Haley are both in a special needs class with their beloved teacher, Miss Laverne. Miss Laverne has all the students in the class talk about anything for an hour on Friday, and it brings everyone close in new and impactful ways. One kid, Esteban, is dealing with the detainment of his father in an immigration detention facility, and then all the kids join together to support Esteban and learn more about each other in the process. This basically follows them through the months as they talk on Fridays. And then they talk about race, class, gender, immigration, and more, and then things get sad and sappy. And as the critics would say, things get poignant. Yeah, this story doesn't really have a defined plot so much as it's a twisting narrative of Haley going through her life dealing with her father being in prison and he's like about to be released um, back into the world. It kind of jumps back and forth in time. We see her deal with a childhood injury. We see her learning about how her mom died the first time. Um, We see her meeting her best friend and like how that happens and... And it's not given to you linearly. It is very non-linear. Yeah. I mean, there's still a direction, so... Yeah. It's not like everything is jumping around all the time. Yeah, like, it, everything connects thematically, but it does not have a specific plot. Yeah. We should probably talk about our backgrounds with the book and get yeah. into the conversation that we did not get into during But Not Buddy. Yes. Yep. <laughs> what conversation did we not get into in But Not Buddy? how we've been really bad at covering (laughs) covering authors of color just in general yeah okay so what is your background with this book i have no background with this book this is my first time reading this book uh this is a first for this podcast for a regular episode yeah yeah this is the that's the same thing for me i have never read this book before i actually have never read a jacqueline woodstein book despite her being a very prolific author so have you've read something by her before haven't you Yes, I think I did. But you can't remember. But I cannot remember. Also, I could be getting it confused with another book. So I do not know for sure. But um, (laughs) it was thrown around at one point that we should do a Jacqueline Woodson book. I don't remember what the why it was specifically Jacqueline Woodson. I think it's mostly very popular. Yeah, she's one of the most popular black writers of our time. And also, it's a thing where. We are covering a lot of what was going on in fiction in the early 2000s. That was when we were little. This is what's going on now. Well, this was also kind of going on when we were little because Brown Girl Rising was a big... Or Dreaming, sorry. Brown Girl Dreaming is one of her most popular books. And Harbor Me is actually her first book since Brown Girl Dreaming that is for middle schoolers, which I think is pretty neat. Mm -hmm. But 
neither of us read Brown Girl Dreaming, despite it being very popular when we were younger. Yeah. So this podcast up until this point has been very much like us talking about the books that we read as kids. And, you know, Sophie and I are both white people who come from upper middle class families. Like we have different backgrounds, but we come from pretty privileged places and very privileged, very privileged places. <laughs> and the books that we read as children kind of reflect that. Yeah. So we wanted to just like, like this is why we read Bud Not Buddy last week. That's why we we read Harbor Me this week. It's because we just want to make sure that we are acknowledging that there is a world of fiction that we might not have consumed as children, but that are still important to talk about in the conversation of elementary and middle school books. And I also want to make clear that this is this is not going to be a one-off situation just because it was Black History Month like a yeah. week ago. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no. We're going to try and do, do a this more. effort. Yeah. And it was not great in season one how we did all white authors. And I think that part of the, a lot of what, of the criticism we did mm-hmm. in the books we read in our first season was white authors being bad about race in their books, especially in, in the fantasy world books. Yeah. The publishing industry is extremely white, like disturbingly white. And there is so much gatekeeping that goes on in this industry. And so the own voices movement wasn't as big back when we were younger. And so it was less likely that our teachers were going in our fairly white schools were going to promote authors of color beyond the one token like yeah um like the um i think the main books that i can remember reading in elementary slash middle school that specifically talked about race were still written by white authors like chains that um, that was a big one um oh yeah chains got so got propped up so much and it's written by a white author and we never even talked about that yeah in terms of the books that my classes read, I can think of maybe, in terms of chapter books, I can think of like maybe four. Mm-hmm. And this is for all six years of elementary school. So mm-hmm. yeah, there there's that yeah. lovely situation. And also with books, it's like all, it's an all over problem as you would imagine. Libraries, the ones that they're promoting. Mm-hmm. It was a very... It's um, a self-perpetuating system. Homogenous look. Like, the bookshelves do not look the same. As when we were kids, yeah. Yeah. Yep. They don't. And it has been really great to see the impact of the Own Voices movement. Mm -hmm. And just generally, publishers... Uplifting voices of color. Well, I don't want to give credit to publishers, but... Okay, fair enough. But they're they're doing a better job than they used to, and they deserve yeah, the most minimal credit for yeah. that. They more credit should go to the people who have done a yeah. good job pressuring them into making these changes. Yeah, and we are very happy that the shelves look different than yeah. when we were kids. And then we're also talking about the kind of people who are going to have enough resources and privilege to be able to write 
and publish a book and do that for a career because yes that is, is another part of the system yes this is like a dying industry. it's not, not dying, a dying industry like, you know it's not a very lucrative it's not lucrative that is for sure yeah and um i know most authors have more than one job mm-hmm. or yeah. a lot of authors at least from the books that we were reading mm-hmm. they were married and so their spouse supports them. Yeah. Or supported them while they were writing. Yeah. It's actually, okay, this is a little bit off topic, but talking about how writers make their money made me think of a podcast that I listened to recently. So I listened to the Dear Hank and John podcast, which is the Green Brothers podcast. Um, I'm sure we'll cover a John Green book one of these days. Don't worry, we'll get there. In like three years. In three years or something. Um, But I love their podcast. I think it's very funny. And in one of their most recent episodes, they talked about how both of them like make their living and they're both married and their spouses are both very successful people but they talked about how for them a lot of their money does come from book royalties just because like you know john green has been publishing books for over a decade and so he's written quite a few successful books and they've been made into movies and tv shows so he's mm-hmm. able to make his living that way and then hank green has he wrote a book recently and it's been very successful and he also has like his numerous businesses that he's been able to sell off over the years name net recognition will get you far yeah. Having a platform will get you far. Yeah, exactly. And they ha- have built a very big platform for themselves. Um, and they continue to use it in, I think, a pretty good way. They donate a large majority of the money that they make. And a lot of their money goes into charitable foundations, which is really great. Yeah, so it's only when you get to like that level of name recognition mm-hmm. where you are able to make money off of like book sales. Yeah, and also so many good books are getting rejected because publishing is a business and so there's just the whole thing where this isn't going to sell. And if you have an industry that is predominantly like white and upper middle class, mm-hmm. of course they're going to have a skewed view of things and what's going to sell because... Yeah you know, racism, but <laughs> which is not a very, very eloquent. <laughs> yeah. Again, gatekeeping, it's bad. And I think an important thing to say is when we say gatekeeping, we don't just mean like direct gatekeeping. Like this sort of stuff happens at every single level of the publishing industry. It happens in a myriad of ways in every facet of life where certain people have the time, ability, resources to write and publish a book, and other people do not have that same option. Yeah, and also, when we're looking at how things are promoted, the really gross thing that is happening with publishers and uh, authors of color is that they will tokenize the book and Mm -hmm. publish it and then be like, this is representation, this is... This is the book that we need. Yeah. And then they won't actually give the author the care and the resources that they would give to other authors because they're like, oh, this is good to go. This will sell. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like how with 
some books that we've talked about in the past, we've commented on how they could use another turn through the editing. Yeah. So Daughter of Smoke and Bone. This was a book that I read earlier ago. It was actually a James Patterson book Mm -hmm. that was promoted by him to put a stamp on the own voices movement. Really gross. I hate James Patterson. Um, Okay. Fight me, James Patterson. I have some things to say to you. Please don't let him listen to this. Okay, so this was... (laughs) So this was a queer woman of color writing this book and it got rightly uplifted and promoted Mm -hmm. and i didn't personally like the book because i don't like sexual assault Mm storylines but oh i think i tried to read that book but i couldn't get very far into it because it was it was a tough read yeah and it's also one of those things where that book needed uh, more editing passes and then it was got trashed in reviews yeah because of its of the way that it was written. Yeah, like the writing wasn't the writing as good itself. as it could have been. When that was something that could have been fixed easily with another few passes and revisions. Yeah. Yeah, so that kind of feeds into the whole idea that the publishing industry is, again, an industry that it designed to make money. And that sometimes means that books that need a little bit more time and care, they don't get that because they just push it out so that they can make money. Yeah, and then people also tend to criticize books that are lauded as important books way more heavily. People put way more criticism on authors of color and just marginalized voices in general. Yeah, because they are raised so high and the expectations are so high, they have much farther to fall. Yeah, and in terms of booktubers... Unpopular opinions and negative reviews, that gets the most clicks and that makes them a lot of money. I mean, that's the entire problem with YouTube in general, but I'll be quiet. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So a lot of the... It is cool to hate popular books. It is profitable for critics to hate popular books. It's profitable to be negative. (laughs) Yeah. So it's Which not... It's really fucked up. <laughs> it's not working out well. Yeah. Then there are other authors where people will... Like Sarah J. Mass. People will give her a pass for her... Her books suck. For her nastiness, because they'll be like, oh, she's just writing a fun fantasy book. No. But then people won't say that to authors of color because it's a situation where, like, they have to represent and it has to be, like, perfect. Yeah. So this is like a ongoing conversation in yeah. the whole publishing world, and I just want to get us back to talking about Harbor Me, yes. <laughs> um, because th- this entire discussion, I think, has been to say that we do not want, as a podcast, we want to make sure that we are not um, playing into this negativity market, yeah. or like... You know me, I can yeah. be very negative. Yeah, like we want to make sure that we are uplifting positive things when we can but while being honest while being honest and to be honest i think harbor me is a great place to start because on this read through it might have been my first time reading this and i might have read it on times two speed with the audiobook but i still thought it was a great book i thought it was beautifully written i am shocked that i have not read any jacqueline woodson before this and i might have to rectify that i probably will not just knowing myself 
um, because she doesn't exactly write the types of books that I naturally gravitate towards. But I think that she is a fantastic author. And this book was very powerful. And if I had been listening to it on normal speed, I'm sure it would have made me cry. Yeah, I never cry in books, but I gotta say, this book gave me the feels. Yeah. And books don't usually give me the feels because I have a very mechanical way at looking at books because I spend too much time writing. And um, yeah, so I thought that this book was a lot. It was a lot. It discussed so much. Mm -hmm. And yet the quieter actual plot and not having much happen made the discussions all that more impactful. It was very similar to Bud Not Buddy, I think. In not not entirely. I, don't think so. I I mostly mean in like the way where like you get to see the world through kids' glasses, kind of. Yeah. These kids are a couple of years older than Bud was in Bud Not Buddy, which I think helps the ability of the book to discuss more nuanced topics. Um, but just in the way where like. A lot of times it mentions issues without going 100% into the political debates that surround them. It went it, way, it, it went pretty farther far. Than, yeah, it went farther than I was expecting it to go. But it it wasn't like trying to preach or anything at yeah. you, which is probably more what I'm trying to say. Yeah, this book is a conversation starter. Yes, yes. One of those books. Which is which is what it's similar to But Not Buddy in, I think. Because I thought that that book was kind of a conversation of the history of the Great Depression and racism during that time period. I mean, I would say that that is a big element and, like, that is something that it would be discussed, but I also feel like But Not Buddy was much more linear story yeah. story. Like there That's is, true. I don't know. yeah. No, I think you're right, and it's also not fair to compare these two books too much, because they are incredibly different. Yeah. Is this the first non-linear narrative that we <laughs> have no, I don't think so. read on this podcast? I'm trying to think, or I guess Each Little Bird That Sings was kind of non-linear. No, no, it was linear. Oh, it was? Yeah. Okay. Then. Yeah, I think it might be the first non-linear book that we have read, which yeah. is, I really like non-linear books a mm. lot. Except for this one thing. Yes. This one thing that I want to say when we actually talk about the writing a little bit more. I enjoyed this book a lot. I thought that these stories were very immersive and mm. I was very invested in all the characters. I wouldn't say that they were especially fleshed out characters in a traditional way, but yeah. it didn't really matter because it felt more like it was a thematic book yeah than anything else though i do think that the that Haley was had more of a traditional character arc situation going on which makes sense because she was the main character i feel like this book almost like it like just barely started her character arc which is very on theme for this book where it was kind of talking about how Every ending's also a beginning type of thing. Yeah. Which I liked. I thought it was very realistic in terms of character development. Also the destruction of Happily Ever After. That was a big thing. The destruction of Happily That's funny. Um, but I think that, like, one thing that I was thinking about character-wise while reading it was that I didn't quite get 
enough personality from Haley besides that she was like quiet and like I understood why she was quiet and all of that stuff so I didn't mind like I don't know yeah I just felt like she didn't have quite a defined personality well the characters with the most personality were Holly and Amari yes in terms and of- I think that's mostly because we were seeing them from Haley's point of view yeah and like those and then Esteban has like the most um it was an art book you know what I mean? Like it, it was, was artsy. It was yeah. a very artsy book, and so I would say that in terms of me caring about characters having personality, this one bothered me less because there was enough. There was so much depth to this book that I didn't mind when things had a little bit less traditional mountain character arc. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, I didn't care. To be honest, I yeah. though I do think that in terms of, I think this is a situation where the main character is more of an observer. Definitely, who you find more about, of course. Like this isn't, this isn't like a reader insert situation Mm-mm. because, like, yeah, no, this is a very specific backstory. It's honestly, like you think it's going to be a reader insert situation, and then it twists. Mm, I don't really know if it twists. Well, it doesn't twist, but. It there's, like has, you find you there's like, complexity. Oh, there's a lot, lot more to Haley than just being the main character. Yes. Yeah. We also didn't really find out a lot about what their relationship was like outside of these Friday Friday sessions. I mean, we kind of get to see as the book progresses through time, they start eating lunch together. Yeah. We don't really get a sense of if they were doing that beforehand, it's kind of implied that they weren't. Mm-hmm. And they start walking out of school together and protecting one another from bullies. Yeah. So they definitely grow closer outside of their Friday discussions. But this is certainly not a book that cares about the characters' lives outside of their interactions with one another, if that makes sense. And I don't mean that in a negative way. And I think that what I just said sounded kind of negative. Yeah, well, it cared about Haley's life. Sort of. No, it, it did. Yeah. Yes, because that was, like, the whole framework where, like, she starts off w- with being sad that her uncle ha- is leaving, and then we end the book with, like, her uncle leaving so that she can, like, actually live with her dad now that he's back from prison. Um, and that's, like, the whole framework is she's, like, looking back on this past year mm-hmm. that she had and how, like, the things that she came to realize and all of that Um, But I mean, like, with every other character, it's kind of like they exist to tell their story, kind of. And I don't think that that's a bad thing in this narrative. It's also, it feels like, it feels like this is what Haley is seeing from them. Yes, yeah. And Haley, of course, is not really going to know their life outside of school. And I think that is an interesting parallel to how things work in the world where sometimes you just never you never know what people are going through Mm, mm -hmm. when you are in class with someone you never know yeah yep one of the parts that i found really interesting oh um the like one white boy in their group Ashton. ashton i think it was really interesting how um like Like, he took part in, hmm, I don't know how to phrase this, but I feel like the way that they, that Jacqueline Woodson handled his character 
was very well done and like he was pretty fleshed out and we got to see like how a white kid like would realistically react in that situation and it's also like but it's not shown to be like he's not in the right like and it is shown in the narrative that he is not in the right yeah which i think is it's like it's very realistic Mm -hmm. but it is also it deals with it in a nuanced way as well if that makes sense yeah and it also doesn't have ashton getting over his misconceptions yeah like he isn't suddenly a perfect non-racist white boy yeah he still is part of this like system he's part of these systems of power yeah but we get to see a more nuanced point of starting to realize it a little bit more yeah and i also liked how he was like we literally see him being bullied and that is like yeah there's it's just like there's more nuance in all of these characters than is explicitly expressed on page mm-hmm. which i think is really really cool like um with holly where she's clearly dealing with a lot of feelings about class because she has a very visceral visceral reaction to be calling to being called rich girl by her classmates because she doesn't want to feel like she is different from the Mm -hmm. people around her which is very fair and also a realistic situation yeah and also but also it's in like, intersection in intersectional yeah. point of view. Yeah, it's but very interesting. Yeah, and she's also she's not she's not like in the right in any way. Like she has her whole thing where she's like, I'm not rich, my parents are rich. And then she points out to Haley that she's also rich. Yes. <laughs> which I think is a really good move. And Haley, like, initially emotionally pushes back against that because mm-hmm. she's like, I'm not rich. But it's like, yes, you are. Yeah. And it's it's just, it's so realistic. And, like, I loved it so much. <laughs> and I feel like I'm kind of rambling here. Mm-hmm. But that's okay. I, I liked it a lot. I think, yeah. The whole plot with... Uh, like the main plot with Esteban mm-hmm. dealing with the his father gets detained and he gets sent to an immigration detention facility in, in Florida. Florida. And this book takes place in Brooklyn, New York. So, yeah. you know, very far away. Um, and then at the end of the book, like Esteban and his family, they move back to the Dominican Republic because yeah. his father is deported. And his mm-hmm. mother is, I think, being deported or something. Like, she's at risk of being deported. Yeah, and also, they don't want to be living apart. They don't want to break up the family. Yeah, yeah. Well, Esteban specifically says multiple times that he just wants them to be a family. He doesn't care yeah. about living in America. He wants to be with his family. Yeah. Which I think is a very, like, it's a, it's a realistic point of view. Mm-hmm. I also loved, so Tiago is from Puerto Rico. Yeah. And that whole thing about, yeah, people treating Puerto Rico like it's not part of the United States. Even though it's a U.S. territory. 
Yeah, more like colony. <laughs> Fair enough. He also had a really good part about um, where he and his mom were speaking Spanish outside and someone yeah. like yelled at them to speak English because they're in America. And um, we get this story after Esteban is like um, gone from school for a week or something because Tiago is like really sad that the one other Spanish speaking kid isn't mm-hmm. there anymore. So he has no one to speak Spanish with. Yeah. And I just, I really liked, I liked how like these stories all kind of flowed together. Yeah. If that makes sense. Like it felt very natural when all of these different reveals almost happened. Yeah, there is a conversation with Jacqueline Woodson and her son at the end of the audiobook. And in that conversation, Jacqueline Woodson was talking about how she had to do a lot of research on Puerto Rico. Mm. And um, I know it seems like Puerto Rico was discussed only in that scene. Mm -hmm. But it is still obviously a part of Tiago's identity. Mm -hmm. So that kind of thing, doing doing the research... Even if you were only going to use it for one scene. Yeah. Apparently. Yeah. The way some people treat it was very, it it showed. Yeah. And I'm sure she did a ton of research about the Dominican Republic as well, because Esteban sounded like a very fleshed out character. Yeah. Yeah. What? No, there's, no, I'm just remembering how the very beginning... There was just a lot of repetition of the, I think, I think they took my poppy. Or yeah. They took my poppy, mm-hmm. which, which listening to it in the audiobook felt a little bit clunky the way it was repeated because it was a full cast audio. So it was like a little weird because it was just that one phrase. Mm-hmm. It would have been worse if it wasn't a full cast audio, honestly, because <laughs> at least I had the voice changed to signify yeah, whoever, that it was different. Whoever was the voice actor for Amari... Yeah. Oh. Get this kid some roles. It was certainly <laughs> a choice. It was very it was a very specific choice. I and liked it worked. It, it worked yeah. so well. Get this kid. I don't know okay, obviously if the kid isn't interested, that's fine. But <laughs> this kid was a great voice yes. actor. Yes. I think same with Esteban's voice actor though. Maybe this is just because I was listening to it on times two speed, but the voice was very shaky in places where I didn't think it needed to be shaky, mm-hmm. like full of emotion all yeah. the time, mm-hmm. which is like fine. Yeah, but in terms of the writing, this is my biggest critique of the book. Okay. The So it's very hard to pull off the foreshadowing language mm-hmm. in a book, and this was like this is like my only big criticism at the beginning of the book it was a little bit it felt a little weird to me when there was there was just like a lot of foreshadowing about how sad it was going to be etc etc and this has been a common theme but i do not like when books tell me how to feel And I felt like I was being told how to feel when it was doing the foreshadowing in a very overt way. Mm -hmm. And if there was a way, I think that that could have used a little bit more subtlety or maybe not given away too much about how the book was going to end. Even though it wasn't really a situation, you know what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. 
the moment the the conflict with Esteban is introduced, you know what's going to happen. It is made very clear. Yeah, they even give you like a, they show you the kids having false hope. And it's like, oh, oh, kids. They have oh, no. false hope at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But they're very after in the midpoint. No, in like the three quarters of the way through, they are extremely devastatingly realistic about what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was really sad. <laughs> yeah, the beginning made me feel like, ooh, because of the <laughs> the way that the end of the book was foreshadowed, or Haley being just generally sad at the very beginning of the book. Mm-hmm. Where, like, you're starting off at this place, and then she's saying, like, oh, yeah, there's going to be this thing with the six of us. It's going to be so different now that I'm going into seventh grade. But that was, like, the main thing, is that I... You just didn't like that it was telling you how to feel. I didn't like how it was telling me how to feel, and I didn't like how I heard it was, and I also didn't like how many times it happened. Foreshadow a couple times... Don't do it in this, or foreshadow more overtly once, and then do you can do it more subtly. But I didn't like it, and it went away. The great thing was that that kind of that went away, and the scene, the flash forwarded scenes into the future, were much more grounded and emotional in the moment of what's going on in the future with Haley's father mm-hmm. being released from jail. I have an opposite opinion. I didn't really think that the beginning was like telling me how to feel or anything or that it was foreshadowing too much. I was, I think I kind of just like let myself be carried away by the prose a bit, which it helps that the prose is pretty great and that the full cast audio book um, was beautifully read. I was just kind of there for the ride. (laughs) Mm-hmm. which I think was the optimal way to consume this book. I also think that it does a beautiful job like expressing what it feels like to be that age where you're moving schools and you're suddenly older and you're going to have a lot more expectations and it's like, oh, adults don't understand me, but I'm not really a kid anymore because I'm dealing with all these big things. Like, that's what it felt like to me, and I thought it was really well done. Yeah, I agree with that. I think something about... Oh, shoot, what was I... I lost it. (laughs) (laughs) I lost it. Um, Oh, when the characters did feel older than their actual ages, the language they were using maybe wasn't the most realistic for the discussions they were having, but it didn't matter to me. See, I don't know if it felt unrealistic at all, because I feel like I could be wrong about this. I could be misremembering my own past or whatever. But I feel like sixth grade was in fifth and sixth grade. That was around the time when I started like having bigger thoughts, if that makes sense. I started doing more self-reflection and that's often where self-reflection really starts. And that kind of marks the transition from childhood into pre-tweenness. <laughs> yeah, I mean, 
And I all the flow of the conversations yeah. basically did not feel oh, it realistic was too to flowy. younger kids. Yeah, but <laughs> it didn't matter. First of all, because it's fiction, so fair suspension of disbelief. There were a bunch of people who said like a teacher wouldn't leave leave students alone in a room for an hour, and that's a thing like. Come on, just accept the art. That's the entire <laughs> foundational point. Just, yeah, if you're if on. you're gonna get caught up on that, <laughs> just like don't read the book at that point. <laughs> yeah, but with these characters, I thought that people tend to dumb down their child characters. Yeah, in books, mm-hmm. they dumb them down, or they assume that kids won't know something, or they assume that kids cannot handle a topic. Mm-hmm. Well, these kids can handle the topics. They're talking about the topics. And you know what? The kids reading will also be talking and thinking about the topics. So, yeah. like, these kids, it was their lived reality for yes. all of them. So, yes. of course, they're going to have a new, like, a more nuanced discussion of these issues that maybe, like... A bunch of white college students wouldn't be able to have. And that's what I think made it feel realistic. Like, the writing and the conversations. Yes, it obviously flowed more smoothly than any child has ever spoken. Yes. A lot less ums and likes and all of that. But I think because they were all talking about their own lives and their own experiences and their backgrounds were so clearly well thought out and their characters were extensions of their backgrounds and informed by that. And learning from each other, too. And learning from each other throughout the, the year that they spent together. I feel like that's why it felt, I guess, in the room with them having these conversations. <laughs> I think more teachers should put the trust in their students that Miss Laverne does. I liked Miss Laverne a lot. I think that, an, oh, another one of the cr- criticisms that I saw on Goodreads yeah. was people being like, why didn't they specify what special needs they had? Mm-hmm. And that's not... That's not the point. It's not the point. It's not relevant. Also, we don't even know if these kids actually have special needs. Like, yeah. I mean, her best friend, Holly, very clearly has ADHD. Mm-hmm. I'm sure... One or two of them has dyslexia or something. Mm-hmm. But it seems more so like the comparison that I drew for myself from my own school experience is in my high school, we had something called the cage. That's what the students called it. It wasn't actually a cage. It was basically the room that kids who were struggling got sent to when they needed extra help. And I had a friend in high school who their mom died in, I think it was our sophomore year. And after their mom died, they ended up going, they were put into math tutoring in the cage. And they had to go there like once a day because they were struggling with math. And that's where all of the kids who had, like, family problems or, like, I don't know, if a girl ever got pregnant, that's where they would go. Um, Not that that happened very often in the suburbs of Chicago, but, you know, it happens. Yeah. Um, But that's kind of what this classroom felt like to me, like, the place where kids go 
when it's not that they have been diagnosed with a learning disability or like they have they don't have an individual i or an iep an individual education plan or anything but it's like they are struggling in the normal classroom and they need more individual attention so the school decides to try out this thing where they put six students together with miss laverne and give them the individual attention that they need yeah and it's also one of those things where people will decide which students are going to struggle the minute they step into class yeah and that is a self-perpetuating system unfortunately and a lot of it is based in um racism yeah and unconscious bias yes it is true that this was a very diverse school however that does not mean that the educators are with it we didn't get told what the um racial makeup of the educators is miss laverne we are told is a black woman yes People get taken out. And I was one of the people who took kids out of class when I was tutoring kindergartners Mm -hmm. through college. Yeah, people get taken out of class not for really specific things, but because they are identified as struggling. Yeah. Um, And then it's really just the way that it is being taught does not work for them. And that other ways of explaining it and doing things work a lot better. And I think what I found interesting about this book is that, like, the school decides to make this really small class of kids who struggle in the normal classroom setting instead of just, like, pulling them out of individual classes or whatever and tutoring them in individual subjects. They take them all... They're all struggling with different things. They're, they all have very different circumstances that they're going through, but they put them all in a classroom and they grow from each other. Like, we don't really get to learn more about their academic year, but their personal growth is extraordinary, at the very least. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that as, like, a a system. I don't like... I don't like the pulling kids out of class so much either. Yeah. But also, anything that creates different... Like a divide between students. Yeah. Yeah, different tracks... Yeah. I hate, it's so bad for people's mental health. Yep. And it also reflects, also... It reflects class more than anything. Yeah. And then colleges are messed up in their admissions, and they're, of course, going to judge the tracks. Oh, I was just having this conversation with my honors advisor earlier today. Mm. <laughs> it's very interesting because um, my advisor for my honors project is a, he's an Oberlin College professor for the English department. He's a wonderful man. Love him. But <laughs> his background, he is from the Appalachians, and he's, like, one of the only kids from his high school who went to college, and he went to Oberlin, I believe. And, like, it's so interesting to talk to him t- about education stuff because he comes from such a different background than I did. Not even starting to account for the fact that he's like 50 years old (laughs) Um, or older. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Tracking is horrible. I feel like I've talked about it on this podcast before, but like my high school does pretty extreme tracking Uh and it really fucked up. Um, And yet it gets super praised for it. Yeah. But it like the whole system really fucked up. My sister and I in very different ways. Mm -hmm. My high school 
didn't overtly do tracking, but it found other ways. Yeah, my high school did very overt tracking. <laughs> yeah, the thing that I did like is how my high school framed AP classes. Mm-hmm. They said they framed it as a workload situation, not an intelligent situation. They were like, can you handle this workload? Okay, see, that's how, like, that's how my high school framed our tracking system as well, where it's like, oh, the higher level classes are just faster and they cover more material, mm-hmm. which was kind of like a workload thing. But, you know, people still felt like it was an intelligence thing. Yeah, it was also a situation where, like, do you want to do a bunch of test prep for an entire year? It was also framed that way. I mean, yeah, that's what AP classes are. Yeah, which is not cool. And so there was actually a lot, the non-AP classes were kind of framed as being able to go way more in depth and have more valuable conversations about the material because you don't have to worry about test prep and in-class essays, DBQs, document-based questions. Oof. Neither of us had IB in our schools, but I have friends who participated in the IB system throughout high school. And that's just like another educational system that uses, it's not really tracking, but like is a more intense system that some schools use. Seems like a lot of work. Anyone working on their IB papers right now, I'm sorry, that sounds hard. (laughs) Good luck. People say that I would have done well in IB But I think about the workload, and I also think about how college destroyed my, me and my ability to essay write. I wouldn't have done well. Mm -mm. You would have hated it. I would have had so many more problems earlier. (laughs) Anyway, education system. Should we talk about some characters? (laughs) Should we talk about literally anything besides the thing that we somehow always end up talking about? (laughs) Okay, so we kind of talked about Haley, but do you have anything else to say about Haley? No, I don't think so. I like her a lot. I think it was an interesting decision to make her a, um, a black girl with red hair. Yes. It was certainly a decision. It was a choice, and it was also a choice to emphasize it and glorify it. And to have her be called red by, like, half the characters in the book. Like, there are other nicknames for redheads. Interesting choice. I appreciated that it wasn't like a straight red hair situation. Yeah, she did have very kinky hair. Yeah. I did really appreciate the whole, like, subplot where um, her uncle never figured out how to do her hair, even though he tried really, really hard. Mm -hmm. So she ends up going to her best friend Holly's mom Mm -hmm. every Friday, and Holly's mom does her hair every week. Yeah. Which is really cute. And, like, it's really sweet that her uncle tried so hard to, like, learn how to do her hair, even Mm -hmm. though he is a white man. And it's nice that he was able to find someone who could help him with it. Yeah. I don't know. I I liked that part. Really well done. Yeah. And I also thought that... I wouldn't say that there was a specific discussion of colorism or anything but i would say that Haley acknowledged that she had different a different situation than maybe holly mm. because she her said uncle it was white yeah she did say at one point that people see her hair first and then her skin color which mm-hmm. i found interesting 
I do wish that we had gotten more interactions where her, uh, where like her uncle is looked at weird because she's a black girl and he's a white man and like how are they related type of thing. Like I wish that had been part of her story because I think that would be realistic. Yes. However, this book already talks about so much. That's true. It might have been a little bit overwhelming. It was just something that I felt like was missing. Yeah, but also I'm conflicted about wanting to add more because there's already so much discussed and so much depth there. Mm -hmm. And these are also issues that like maybe we don't know much about like on an instinctual basis because we are white. But then readers of color would know it without having to have that part be included. Yeah, I also think that if that was to be included, it would necessitate more characters being added, if that makes sense. Like, we would need an outside observer Mm -hmm. to, like, comment on it. It would add more white people, probably. Yeah, which, that's not needed. It's something that probably was a part of Haley's life Mm -hmm. but I think it's not the worst thing in the world that it wasn't included I get why it wasn't included there was no easy way to like slip it into the book yeah or no necess there's no need for this book to cover every single issue true true and we should never glee yes you know we should not be trying to emulate glee who tried to cover every single societal issue ever and a terrible thing and ended up failing miserably (laughs) it is much better to cover a few issues very deeply and well and i think this book covers a wide variety of things in more depth than we could ever expect or more depth than i expected Mm mm-hmm this isn't about solving... The book isn't, like, about... It isn't about solving any problems. Yeah. It's... It's about community and yeah. friendship. Yeah, it's about community I and love friendship, friendship books. Okay. Yeah. about Haley. We talked about Holly, sort of. Anything Yeah, I don't Holly? think there's anything else to talk about with Holly. I think Holly is a great friend. Yeah. Like, she's really, really good. Yeah, and, and also... Even though we got we got a sense for character and how she wasn't perfect. Yeah, she's not perfect, but she's a good friend. Yeah. Yes. And then um, Amari. <laughs> Amari. I freaking loved Amari. He's so funny. He's so good. Um He just he supports Estevan so much. Also, baby activist to the he's, max. He, well, I don't know if he we can call him a baby activist. He's just like, well, yeah. He's, he's a kid who is living through the fear of death. Yeah, no, but yeah, he also knows what he's talking about. I think we can give more credit to his parents for doing a good job talking to him about these things. Yeah, and um. And he does a good job telling his friends about the things that he knows about. Yeah. And, like, having those conversations. Even if we kind of get the vibe that he is very angry as well. Very angry at Ashton for not knowing what the heck is going on. I don't know if he's, like... I think he's just, like, frustrated that Ashton isn't understanding what isn't being said. 
And I also see it from the point of view where Ashton is like, please just tell me outright what you're trying to say. Yeah, though that... Which, but it's also, like, not Amari's job to educate this white boy. Yeah. So, there's just, it's, again, it's such a good conflict. Also, Amari had some pretty good community, like, like, he needed to be angry at Ashton. Yeah. He needed to. And he said, he did tell Ashton about how there was a part of him that hated him for having this privilege. And yeah. for being able to play Not around with Nerf, gu- Nerf guns or water guns. Water guns. Yeah. Without fear of police or... Police yeah. violence. Yes. Yeah. And But he was he was honest about that. And, he's, and then he also recognized that it wasn't about Ashton specifically at all. Yeah, yeah. He does a good job vocalizing that, like, he's angry at Ashton... But not at Ashton specifically. Yeah. I would say in terms of Ashton, there was a very interesting part of a conversation between Jacqueline Woodson and her son. Her son was saying that why the heck would Ashton not know this? Why basically like why would he like I didn't he basically just said like, oh, yeah, I didn't like Ashton. And then Jacqueline Mm -hmm. Woodson tried to push at that and be like, well, it seems like he didn't really know what mm-hmm. was happening and mm-hmm. and then she also said like sometimes people say bad things in ignorance mm-hmm. which is why i love ashton as a character so much because he's just ignorant but he learns and he also has his own struggles mm-hmm. separate from his ignorance if that makes sense i really thought that there was going to be like a domestic violence plot with Ashton. Oh, same. Yeah, I didn't realize there was going to be school bullies. I think it easily could have gone either way. Yeah, it would have basically had the same. No, it wouldn't have. It would have been different. It would have, it would have I been mean, way different. <laughs> uh, but we also kind of get the vibe that Ashton comes from a lower income background. So like... He's not a rich white boy. He comes from a lower class family. Low income. Low income, yes. Well, classism is a big part of this book. Um, And, yeah, there's a a whole part around Christmas time where Holly got a pair of shoes and Ashton was like, I wanted that pair of shoes. And it's just like, it reinforces the fact that, like, Holly and Haley come from a places of or families with wealth yeah and i thought it was a very interesting choice to make the like one white character not be a rich white kid yeah and i think it was a good choice i think it was a really good choice because it exemplified the ignorance that comes from like that that um is inherent in whiteness in america while also exploring like class disparity in how in a very interesting way that plays out a lot in rural america Mm -hmm. and how classism and racism are not the same thing yeah they oftentimes intertwine but they also often bump heads with one another in a lot of 
classism is fueled by racism and a lot of racism is fueled by classism. Yeah, and the thing is, like, a lot of the racist defense that I see whenever, like, there is a poor white person accused of being racist is, like, I can't be racist, I'm poor. Yeah, which is, like, not an excuse. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, Basically implying, oh, yeah, it's the same thing. Which, like, no, it's not. They are yeah. separate. Which is struggle. also kind of what Ashton, Ashton is like, oh, yeah, it's the same thing. And it's like, no, it's not. Yeah, you kind of get the vibe that he thinks that he knows what they're talking about because he comes from a poorer background. But then we also get the pushback where it's like, no, like, you, you can leave behind, like poverty or a low income status like you can't leave behind your skin color if that makes sense like a suit can change a perception but it can't change your skin color yeah i'm just i don't know what i'm saying anymore i wrote a paper on white privilege in my senior year of high school and one of the studies that i looked at was a bus bus driver study about what how a bus driver whether a bus driver would let someone on for free if they Mm. said that they didn't have bus fare and it skewed it was exactly what you would expect with that kind of study yeah um but there was a huge difference if people were wearing a suit hmm yeah classism is real yeah and it was the most drastic difference in the study was with black men wearing a suit and black men not wearing a suit. I bet. That was the biggest difference. Yeah. So for, I've already talked to Sophie about this a little bit, but I was talking to my advisor about it earlier. So I'm thinking about it again. Um, at work, we read Hillbilly Elegy, um, which is a book by this guy who went to law school at Yale whatever but it's a he's like he's from the appalachian like middle ohio area um he's from the hills and all that stuff but it's really interesting because he kind of ends up apologizing for conservatism and racism like through the whole oh but they are poor type of thing or like oh my people are poor Mm-hmm. And as if that is an excuse for being racist or having conservative values or whatever. And it was interesting to talk to my advisor about this because he actually apparently went to the same high school as Wait, the guy who wrote really? the book. Yeah. Apparently the guy's an asshole. <laughs> <laughs> Which was like the funniest. I like. We were talking about, um, he brought up at one point in our conversation, like, he reminded me that he was, like, from Appalachian, not that I had forgotten or anything, but he, like, mentioned it, and I was like, oh, I just read this book, I need to ask him about it, and I was like, hey, this is a completely different topic, but, and then he was like, oh, yeah, that guy, asshole. (laughs) (laughs) Not in those exact words, but, yeah. Yeah. And it was just like, okay, good, good, someone else is, like oh, thank God, there's someone who is from the same background who also sees these the problems in this book that somehow no one at my work saw. Like, ah, I don't know. My problem with hillbilly elegy is, like, how can you see all of these things that 
you are describing and not come out it come out of that as a liberal like how are you a conservative what i am not going to go into um politics right now but i will tell you that there are many reasons and it is not relevant at all but there are many reasons i know there are many reasons and i understand some of them Mm -hmm. but it's also like i find it so interesting that you can have people who experience very similar things but like one or two differences Mm -hmm. will lead to them having completely different worldviews and political ideologies Mm-hmm. I find it fascinating. Yeah, and also a big thing is when something contradicts what people believe, then there's the cold cognitive dissonance thing. Yeah. And then people double down, which is what happens with so many. I don't want to just generalize to Republicans because it is with liberals too. But we're talking. It's, it's, it's basically. It's asymmetrical. It's happening on both sides, but it is happening way more on the conservative side. It's the whole QAnon thing. Yeah, and people people also talk about political polarization, like it's liberals' job to solve it and reach across the aisle, when they're not the ones who are moving so far away, so... Yeah, yeah. It's Um. like, Democrats have not been getting more liberal, but... I mean... Republicans have been getting more conservative. Gradually more liberal. Slowly, not at the same rate. <laughs> yeah. Um, so mean, we've been all over the place. Yeah. Is there any... Do we need to talk about any other characters? I feel like we've talked about most of them. Yeah, I think... Yeah, we've talked about most of them. I think we talked about the characters. Um, I think in terms of the way this book ends, I liked the ending. Mm-hmm. But I also know that it is sad... And there are a lot of readers on Goodreads who I noticed who were hoping against all hope that Esteban's dad would not get deported. <laughs> Which is, like, it seems really dumb for people to hope that, but also there were a lot of, like, early high schoolers on Goodreads. Oh. And yeah. in books, you expect things to work out. Even in a book like this, where you kind of know from the beginning it's not going to work out, you can still hope. See, I think the reason why I didn't have that disappointment is because that was never the thing that I wanted to work out, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Like, the thing that I really wanted at the end of the book that we didn't get is I wanted a flash forward to 20 years in the future and they get back together. Like, I just, yeah, I just wanted that promise to come true. That's the main thing that I was hoping for. I didn't, like, Mm. I wasn't let down by the part where realistic things happened to these characters in a sad way i just want to make i maybe it's because i'm 21 years old and i'm about to graduate college very soon and it feels like my friends are all going in different places and i'm thinking about like moving and all of these things and my sister's probably going to college in canada so like that's really far away so like my loved ones are going to be spread out even more than they have been in the past and I just really, at this point in my life, want that reassurance that, like, you will get back together with the people that you love at the end of the day, yeah. regardless of where life takes you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I love the lack of closure on that, though. <laughs> Fuck you. I love it because... <laughs> I know it's realistic. Like how, how are they going to... Okay, thank goodness 
for technology because if it remember in bug not budding when i was talking about how we didn't have closure on bugs yeah this is a situation where they freaking do have technology so they can connect with each other that way esteban it's, doesn't have a phone shoot right and he just went back to the dominican republic <laughs> sophie <laughs> it's okay he can get facebook they can all connect on facebook <laughs> okay well hopefully there's a computer around if not Facebook come through for us. Okay. Do good, one good okay. thing. But the thing is, the thing is, like, it's not like they can't organize this kind I of know, thing. I know, I know. But it also, realistically, they're not going to all get back together in this. I know, but I want them to. Because they're exactly how you're saying. They're going to be going in different directions. See, I'm also kind of <laughs> glad that we didn't get an epilogue type situation where it tells us one way or another, because I would rather hold that hope in my heart. <laughs> Like and have holding hopes in your heart for an Oberlin reunion. It's gonna happen. <laughs> it's gonna happen. It will happen one day. We will see all of our friends again. We just saw a friend yesterday that we hadn't seen in like over a year. Mm-hmm. And even if we don't ever live in the same places they will ever again, they will still be within visiting distance. And then one day, hopefully, once the pandemic is over, and if they ever actually fulfill their dream of moving to India for a very long p- period of time and living there, we can visit them in India, and it's going to be fine. <laughs> that is a very expensive visit, Jacqueline. I would do it. <laughs> I would not. <laughs> so mean. No, I, I, I like Yes, traveling. you would. I, I love traveling. But, yeah. uh, you know. Um, we would go for like a month. It'd be so fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is a hot topic. Is, Look, sorry. I've just been feeling a lot of feelings about like missing people from my past recently and yeah. like worrying about growing apart from people. Yeah. And it's very stressful because my sister is going to be going to college mm-hmm. next year and she's probably, she's like almost 95% sure she's going to a school in Canada. And then my yeah. parents are probably going to end up moving from literally my childhood home somewhere because they're definitely going to downsize yeah even though i know they're not going to do it right away i know they're thinking about it already and they're definitely going to move somewhere and it's just going to be different and i hate change Mm -hmm. because i have anxiety (laughs) but i mean even people (laughs) i know everyone hates hates change it's just it's who doesn't have anxiety like who doesn't like honestly this is like an honest question not because I know hmm. people, there are people who don't have anxiety, but, like, I do not understand. Like, I cannot fundamentally understand not having anxiety. Yeah, we know you have anxiety, Sophie. <laughs> <laughs> we get it. Yeah. No, I, I don't know either. I don't yeah. understand how people could function without anxiety. Like, what? Yeah. Just, just take me as an inspiration. I'm friends with my high school friends still, and I never see them. But I'm not. And, like... There are people from my past that I will always hold in a special place in my heart, but I will likely never talk to them again. Yeah. And that's just so sad. Yeah, it is. It's so incredibly sad. And I just, I don't want more people in my life to go to that space where I will probably never see them again. You know, mm-hmm. I just want to like minimize that amount of people as much as possible. Oh, don't worry, there are things that you can do. That sounded so threatening. 
That sounded so threatening, Sophie. <laughs> the thing that I'm going to do is live with you and Quirk forever. <laughs> or you could mm. become better about long distance communication. That's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> In case the audio didn't pick it up, Sophie said that I could become better about long-distance communication, and I said that's not going to happen. You don't even have to become that much better. You just need to become a little better. I'm really not good at it, (laughs) y'all. I mean, I've been pretty bad of late, but anyway. um... (coughs) Yeah, we've gone all over the place. Are you okay? Do not die. Okay, so what do you say this book holds up? I mean, we've never read, neither of us have ever read it before. And it's also, when was this book published? Oh. Like, very recently. It literally talks about, like, recent. <laughs> I, I'm i just thinking, like, that's usually your central question. Does it hold up? It absolutely freaking holds up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this book talks about very recent police brutality mm-hmm. situations. Like, yeah. Mm-hmm. It talks about the, um, oh, God. Correct me if I get his name wrong, but the Tamir Rice, mm-hmm. the kid in the park with the toy gun, yeah, who got shot by the police, yeah. like that is a central like thing that's brought up. They bring up other cases of late, yeah, and I yep. really appreciate how they don't make it about Trump. I mean, I know, of course, it's not going to be about Trump, but. A lot of mainstream coverage is like, oh, yeah, this is... It's like it's a byproduct of Trump. Yeah, and it's freaking not. Trump Trump is a byproduct byproduct of this. Yeah, yeah. Trump is the rash that you get when things have gotten really, really bad. Yeah, and also Trump is not an outlier. Oh, yeah, no, he is... He's he's like the, um, the, the biggest... Uh, most visible bump of the rash. This metaphor has gotten away from me. Okay, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about, basic, but basically this wasn't this wasn't treated as like a, oh, these times are crazy and bad, because yeah, sure, there were a ton of things about the past four years mm-hmm. that freaking sucked because of the administration we had, but... But there were problems before and after that. Way before. Okay, yeah. So definitely this book holds up. My fan fiction take is that they all meet up in 20 years. And if if there is an opening, I think Holly and Amari will try dating at some point. Because uh, there was definitely some vibes yes, there. Which I thought were very vibes. cute. And I also like how they weren't resolved. Yeah, but I also think that Haley very clearly has a crush on Amari well, as well. Yeah. So like, they're gonna have to talk about it. Yeah, that it'll be a thing. Maybe Amari will date both of them at different points in time. I could easily see that happening. I don't think Amari is into Haley. Like, I don't think he's as into Haley as he is into Holly right now. But I think it's mostly because. Holly and him butt heads a lot, and Haley's just kind of quiet, but he also seems, by the end, like, very supportive. Well, yeah. And, like, he clearly cares deeply about Haley. Well, yeah. But it's, I guess, I guess what you're saying is, uh, these are literal children, so. Yeah. Ignore what I'm about to say, I guess, but the sexual tension is no. more so there with Holly and Amari. Do not say, <laughs> say romantic tension. Okay. We are not, we were going to go an episode without 
talking about sex at all, and then you had to bring it into here. We literal children. Okay. I'm sorry. I said ignore it. Romantic tension. I can cut this bit out. No, keep it in. Okay. You have to leave it in at this point. I have to put myself on blast. <laughs> yes. Fine. The romantic tension was there. Woo. They just, they butt heads a lot. And, you know, I'm a big fan of enemies to lovers tropes. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> you know. Everyone knows. Yeah. I'm sorry, Dad. <laughs> I am not a fan of that trope because I would actually murder the person before we could get to the lovers part. But, see, okay, <laughs> I'm a fan of enemies to, like, grudging friends to deeply connected friends to lovers. Like, I... you need the progression. Um, I think Esteban comes back to the U.S. for, like, college or something. Maybe. Um, he is a U.S. citizen, so it's very but possible. But would he want to? See, that's the thing. I don't know if he'd want to, but I think his parents might push him to just because, like, you know, the U.S. has really good colleges and that sort of thing, and I could see that it. are expensive. Yeah, but, like, I could see it being the type of thing that they would want him. tuition is a lot. I could see it being the type of thing that they would ask him to aim for. Is he going to college, though? Does he want to? Those are questions. <laughs> Those are questions. I think Miss Laverne is gets a pay raise. She probably deserves a pay raise. Whatever they're paying her, it's not enough. She needs more money. Give her more money. Miss <laughs> Laverne becomes an administrator. No. No, no, no. <laughs> well, actually, she might be really good at it. I'm sure she would be really good at it. But she'll definitely stay a classroom teacher for now. Okay. I think that they will probably continue this whole classroom experiment thing. I think that Haley mm -hmm. and her dad are going to eventually they're going to they're going to work at the relationship. Yeah. And then it's going to be it's going to be great. Yeah, I think there's I always will going get to be there. the thing there. Like there's always going to be the whole accident between them but yeah but i mean like he did not mean to get into the car accident that killed her mother like and he served his time in prison like no it's not it is completely understandable given the law that he served time in prison like he was a drunk driver it was vehicular homicide but for that long that's ridiculous I mean, how long has it been? She, he went to prison when she was three years old. Yeah, and now it's it's been like seven plus years, eight years. Seven, eight years. I, I don't know what vehicular homicide is normally given, that's but I think that's given eight years. I think it's pretty standard, honestly. It that amount of time, be. it shouldn't be, but I think, like, it makes sense why he went to prison. He probably should have gotten out earlier for good behavior because it seems like he feels a lot of guilt and he just wants to be there for his daughter at this point. Mm -hmm. um, I hope he turns out to be a good father. I think he will. I think he will. I think he has enough time. He is coming in to her life when she will need him the most. Yeah, and also her uncle's there too. Yeah, yeah. Her uncle was really like the father of her childhood. And her mother, all wrapped up in one. But I am glad that there is another person to help support her as well now. Yeah. Do we have any other fan fiction takes? It's okay if we don't. I 
don't see any of these characters leaving New York. Okay. Oh, wait, never mind. I don't see Haley leaving New York. That's fair. Yeah, I could easily see her going to a college in New York and then... If she goes to college. If she goes to college, yes, it has. And then staying in the area. Yeah. Yeah. Ratings and conclusions? I would say that I would give it a 4.5 out of 5. Mm-hmm. And the only reason why I docked a point five is because the of the foreshadowing thing that I mentioned earlier that I thought that it was a really had a really really strong middle and a really really strong end but the beginning with the way that it kind of introduced the non-linear timeline did not work for me mm-hmm. and normally I wouldn't like it it made me physically cringe I'll just say that <laughs> okay I'm gonna give this a five out of five yeah I loved it I think instead of doing nostalgia ratings this time, we should do audiobook ratings. Like, what did what'd you think of the audiobook? It was a full cast. Four out of five. Yeah, I think I'll give it a 4.5 out of five. There was a couple of moments that I feel like could have been done a little bit better. The main audiobook mm-hmm. reader. Okay. Yeah. Was... A little bit on the playing it for tragedy vibe of the way that the voice was. Mm-hmm. Which I did not like so much. Which mm-hmm. was probably why the beginning didn't read so well for me. Because uh, it was just like really milking this yeah. future tragedy. Mm-hmm. But um, Amari... A++. Amazing. Get this kid... <laughs> this kid some opportunities if if he wants them yes yes opportunities get the kid the opportunities because great acting oh one thing that we didn't really touch upon is when esteban's father is in the detention facility he writes poems back to him and then Esteban translates them. Oh my gosh, it was so cute. So I'm going to give this another 5 out of 5 for oh poetry and translation specifically. I just mm-hmm. loved the conversation that wasn't it wasn't really like there wasn't a conversation happening around the poetry or about like the translation of the poetry. Yeah. But I love that that was a detail that was included because translation is an art form in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then how Esteban was talking about doing poetry with his dad. And, like, becoming his dad's translator. Yeah. Oh, oh that, that was, was sweet. So cute. <laughs> it was so sweet. Oh, my God. <laughs> this book gets a thousand points out of a hundred for sweetness and heart tugging, I guess. Um, what other questions do we do? If you were a character in this book, who would you be? I feel like that's not really a fair question to ask for this book. No, but no, no, no. Yeah, I don't think we need to answer it this time. I don't really want to. Mm-hmm. I hope to be as good of a teacher as Miss Laverne is one day. Yeah. Like, she seems like a wonderful teacher, and she has the respect of her students. Maybe I'll go with the uncle. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) He's a really good 
parental figure. So good for you. Yeah. Before we get to our outro, I want to shout out um, someone who has been talking to us on Instagram. We have their permission to shout them out. So don't worry. So shout out to the account what to read next ya dot middle grade amazing we love this person more than anything (laughs) um they sent us some really nice messages in our dms don't be creepy jacqueline (laughs) i don't think this is creepy i just appreciate this person so much yes also if anyone else wants to send us dms on instagram please feel free because like i love hearing that stuff and it just i literally have gushed to every single person that we know about the messages that this person sent us but anyways check out their account on instagram because they do a lot of middle grade fiction and um like recommending more upgraded middle grade fiction and YA or yeah you're right YA and middle grade stuff uh um and it's really great so once again that url that you need to check out it's I hate new adult fair enough that's completely <laughs> off topic though um so this person's account it's all lowercase no spaces or anything it's what to read next ya dot middle grade Go check them out. Give them a follow. <laughs> yeah. Sorry if this is creepy, my friend, but I just, you just appreciate you so much. <laughs> Did I make it worse by saying my friend? Yes. Okay, well, I'll stop now. <laughs> I'll stop before Sophie self-combusts. <laughs> it's okay. I asked Rick Ryden to fight me on Twitter. And ask James Patterson to fight me on Twitter. So, you know. Yeah, stop asking authors to fight you. <laughs> Please. Yeah, well, James, I have some things to say to James Patterson. Please don't. <laughs> um, also, a reminder that you can rate us on um, Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts. Or basically anything. And as I have promised many people in my life, if you, re- if you give us a five-star rating on there, I will read anything that you say. Yes. That is a threat. And I will give us a three-star rating. Sophie is not allowed to rate our podcast on Apple Podcasts because she says that she'll give us a three-star rating. And right now we are at a five out of five. (laughs) So she is not allowed to rate us. Yes, I know. I know. I know. Also, I shouldn't be rating myself because the brain is messed. (laughs) Okay. Being able to evaluate myself. On an unbiased basis. Yes. (laughs) Okay. So anyways... That's all for this week. Next time, we'll be reading The Mysterious Benedict Society and The Perilous Journey by Trenton Lee Stewart. This is the second Mysterious Benedict Society we cover, or it's the second Mysterious Benedict Society book. We covered the first one about a year ago. It's our most popular episode, It is our most popular episode. Um, I'd say we did a good job with it, so check that one out. Yeah, give it a listen. Listen to it again if it's been a while since you've listened to it. If you want to, just in preparation. I might have to listen to it again, actually, so I can remember what I said the first time. That's actually a good idea so that we don't repeat ourselves too much. Yeah. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram at WTKA underscore podcast and at our website, link description. 
thanks for listening. Meet up with your friends from elementary school and have a great day. This fifth and sixth grade is elementary school. I'm literally going to cut that out. <laughs>